Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. If you'd like to learn more about us and our many upcoming author events, please visit skylightbooks.com, where you can browse our inventory, buy books, and join our Friends with Benefits Club. You can also follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, and Facebook. To speak to a real live bookseller, please call 323-660-1175. Thanks for your support, and enjoy! <laughs> and uh, this last song I'm going to do, and we'll have Christine come up, uh, is uh, their theme song for Storyworthy. It's called Follow Me. Sister, can you take it real slow? All of you sinners who want to believe, yeah. Hey, 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 get back on the road now, baby. I know you want to be free, and you can follow me, follow me. I'll take you down to the Going to heaven in a blue Cadillac Stereo pumping Alabama in the back We'll pick up my sister along the way, yeah Hey, 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 put on your makeup, baby Get out of the cold To borrow, nothing to steal. I place my own bets and I make my own deals. So if you're following me, yeah, you better make it clear. If you're looking for heaven, baby, the line forks to the rear. Take it down to the river Follow me, follow me We'll keep you satisfied Follow me, follow me Take it down to the river Follow me, follow me I'll keep you satisfied, yeah Christine 
Blackburn, where you at? It's all yours. Ladies and gentlemen. Oh, okay, Dave's coming up. Dave's up, sorry. So, without further ado, let me introduce to you uh, Yakov Shmirnov. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, well, I am excited to be here. And this is an exciting, I know how excited Christine is about the book. So, I'm going to hold it up and you take pictures. <laughs> yes. And uh, it's, it's a huge accomplishment. And I met uh, Christine. I was invited to do Story Worthy. And she did a great job on, uh, on my uh, podcast or her podcast about me. And so I am happy uh, to share with you a few of the stories um, about my life and maybe answer some questions if you have any about me. <laughs> All right, so let's, uh, let me just tell you a little bit about myself. I, um, I, was, um, I grew up in the former Soviet Union, and uh, thank you, uh, and I, um, I was, uh, it was very humble beginnings, you know, I, I lived in a communal apartment uh, with my, uh, my parents and nine other families. My mom, my dad, and I shared the room till I was 26 years old. Yeah, when I was a little kid, my parents wanted to to have to be romantic. They would send me to look out the window, <laughs> and then my dad would say, "So, what do you see in the window?" I said, "Our neighbors being romantic." <laughs> he said, "How can you tell?" I said, "Because their son is looking at me," and, and I was the only child because we had only one window. <laughs> So something magical happened that moment. I heard my parents laugh. And it was so exciting because I knew they were happy. And I kind of figured that laughter must be the expression of happiness. So I wanted to check if that was universal. And uh, those days, the communists were pretty strict. And they would get each kid up. And they would ask you, who is your father? And you were supposed to say, my father is Soviet Union. And who is your mother? And you were supposed to say, my mother is Communist Party. And whom do you want to be? And you were supposed to say, I want to be a builder. I want to be a teacher. I want to be a cosmonaut. And they asked me, who is your father? I said, my father is Soviet Union. I said, good. Who is your mother? I said, my mother is Communist Party. Good, good, good. So whom do you want to be? I said, I want to be an orphan. <laughs> That was not smart, yeah. But here was what happened. My classmates laughed, and I realized that they were happy, and we were connected, and, and that's what encouraged me to continue to do this. And I, you know, eventually came to America in search for more happiness and, uh, and uh, started doing comedy here, and uh, it, it's been uh, an interesting ride. And I was popular probably because of the Cold War was uh, in, in the 80s. It was really popular, and so was I. And then, uh, yeah, and, and I didn't realize that. You know, I thought I was just that good. And, uh, and so I get a phone call from the White House, and they said, we'd like you to come to Washington and perform in front of the bushes. And I said, this would get me arrested. <laughs> and they, what was happening, George Bush Sr. was a vice president for President Reagan. They said, no, we need to come here to perform in front of President Reagan's cabinet. And I said, well, that's better than the Bushes. So 
I go there, they introduce me to the president, they said, Mr. President, this is Yaakov Smirnov, he's a Russian comedian. And President Reagan smiled and he said, well, have you heard this joke? And he proceeds to tell me a joke about the Russian guy who wants to buy a car. And it took forever in those days to buy a car in the Soviet Union. So he goes to a factory and the manager said, put your name on the list, come back in 20 years, pick up the car. <laughs> the guy said, do I come back in the morning or in the afternoon? The manager said, what's the difference? It's 20 years from now. The guy said, the plumber is scheduled to come that morning. <laughs> I didn't expect this joke to be so funny. I cracked up. And then everybody looks at me. Now it's my turn to entertain the president. And I said, Mr. President, you know, when the Americans landed on the moon, that was a big slap in the face to the Soviet government. So Brezhnev called all the cosmonauts into his office and said, Americans landed on the moon. We have to land on the sun. <laughs> they said, Comrade Brezhnev, we can't do that. We will burn up. He said, do you think I'm stupid? You land at night. <laughs> Boy, was I happy when they laughed. And we, we kept telling jokes to one another, and my career was taking off. And then I, um, I married an American woman. Actually, she's not real American. She's from Oregon. <laughs> and uh, we had two wonderful kids, uh, Natasha and Alexander. It took us a while to figure out their names, because when our daughter was born, my wife wanted a real American name for her, Brandy. And I said, Brandy Smirnoff? <laughs> Why don't we just send her to rehab daycare center so she can play with Gene Beam and Johnny Walker? So we called her Natasha. And, uh, and it was interesting, you know, to raise kids with, um, you know, uh, somebody from totally two different cultures. You know, when our son was born, um, and we were, you know, I tried to put him to bed, and he was cranky, and I'm singing Russian lullaby, and I'm singing, Chizik, Pizik, Dieti Bil, Nafantani, what could be? And my wife is looking, and like, what does that mean? I said, oh, it's a song my mom used to sing to me when I was a baby. It says, little birdie, why so blue? I drank vodka, why don't you? <laughs> On, on my wife's face, I can see, pull over, step away from the baby. I said, wait a minute, what about the songs you're singing? Like Rockabye Baby, when the bow breaks, the cradle will fall, and down will come baby cradle and all. Sounds like insurance company jingle. She said, I'll show you how to put the baby to sleep. She puts Alexander in the bassinet. She puts bassinet on top of the dryer. Two minutes later, he was sound asleep. I'm going, oh, great. All other kids are going to go to daycare center. I have to drop him off at the laundromat. <laughs> yeah, that one is mine right there. So if you, uh, folks, and my career moved on. You know, I, I have a theater in Branson, Missouri, um, where I, in the last 23 years, entertained over 4 million people. And it happened, I didn't plan to go to Branson. Um, the, the, when the Soviet Union collapsed, David Letterman had a top 10 list of things that will now happen, uh, will, will change. That the Soviet Union no longer there. And I made number one on the list. Yakov Smirnov will be out of work. <laughs> yeah, I didn't think it was funny. Yeah. And so uh, six months later, it was true. It became true. My contracts in Las Vegas, Atlantic City, Arena, Tahoe were not renewed. So I started to look for a place where they did not know that the Soviet Union collapsed. <laughs> 
they still don't know, and I'm not telling. Yeah. So, so things been great. And uh, if you have any quick questions uh, before uh, Christine comes out or whoever next is coming out, yes, ma'am. Have you done your act in Russia now that it's over? I have done it. I, uh, Showtime Network uh, called me when the changes started happening, and they said, would like you to go to Russia. And I said, what did I do to you? <laughs> and they said, well, the Berlin Wall is down. I said, yeah, but what if they're just remodeling? <laughs> but I did go, and I did a special. It was called um, Yakov Smirna from Moscow, Idaho. So I did half of it in, in Moscow and half of it in Moscow, Idaho. Yes? What was it like uh, working with Robin Williams? Oh, it was, it was great. It was great. Robin, Robin was learning Russian as he was making the movie. So he would practice on me all the time. And one time he came over and said, which means you make me feel like a natural woman. <laughs> Made my day, I'll tell you that. Yeah. Any other questions? Anything else? Yes, how dangerous was it um, with your art when you were in Russia? How dangerous was it with my art? Well, it, it was... Well, we had a department of jokes. I'm not joking. I'm, I'm serious. They had a department of jokes which was part of the Ministry of Culture. So you had... They would censor your material every year and you had to stay with the script. So if you pass that... And, and you couldn't improvise. If someone heckles you from the audience, you couldn't say anything. You just have to say, come back in a year and I'll approve some ad lib for you, you know. But um, the, the limited subjects, we could not talk about um, government, um, politics, sex, and religion. Wow. The rest was fine. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah. Any other questions? Any, uh, yes? What's your take on the bad pussy riot? Um, <laughs> um, it's... Uh, no, no, I neither. I, uh, I, I think that it was very brave what they did. Uh, not smart, but brave. And, uh, you know, Putin is a tough cookie. I mean, he is... Head of the was a head of the KGB, and the KGB stands for "Kiss Goodbye Your Butt." <laughs> so I wouldn't play with him, you know. I mean, he just went through a divorce; it just became final like two two weeks ago, and uh, it was pretty amicable. He got two billion dollars, four hundred million dollar house, and a fifty million dollar yacht, and she gets to live. <laughs> yeah, so. Pretty amicable. Yes. Any other questions? Anything else? And they'll. Yeah. So I am. Um, I'm uh, at this point. What I'm. I'm doing. Um, just to kind of wrap this up to give you a little idea of what I've been uh, working on. Um, I realized that you know the Cold War is not a very secure venture. <laughs> I can't rely on that anymore. So, so I started um, on trying to understand the relationships between men and women, and that's probably a lot more secure. That that war will never end. So, 
So, um, and it's been very interesting to do the research. I went back to college. I got my master's degree in psychology at the University of Pennsylvania. And uh, uh, it's, it's been an exciting thing. And I did a lot of research and I came to a shocking conclusion that men and women are different. <laughs> and I'm not talking about physical difference. You don't need master's degree for that. Bachelor's is plenty. I'm talking about hormonal difference, neurological difference, how differently we develop in our mother's womb. And I don't know, you might know this information already, but all of us, um, and, um, you know, first six with pregnancy, first six weeks, we all develop as baby girl. Uh, with ovaries and all the female reproductive organs and then at six weeks testosterone washes over the fetus and damages baby boy's brain that's not when the guys laugh that's better it takes them longer to laugh you see Yes, it's true. It's all true. Yeah, it's very true. So, so it's one of those things that we, uh, that's what I've been working on trying to figure out how to deliver this message because most, um, we don't understand each other because we're so different. And, and, uh, we believe that love can conquer all, you know, and it starts with a young bride is standing in the back of the church and uh, she's so excited. She can't wait to get married. All she can see is him and the altar and the eye. And she's thinking, I'll alter him. <laughs> Good luck with that, ladies. Good luck. And and littlest things, you know, like uh, littlest things that women don't know about men. Like, for example, do you ladies know why we don't stop and ask for direction? Anybody? Anybody has a guess why we wouldn't? Because it's across the board. Every guy does that. We just keep driving because we believe the earth is round. Eventually, we'll get there. And as long as we're making good time, we're not stopping. Well, why? Because, well, nothing excites a woman. Everybody knows this. That a man saying to her, I love you. But not many people know that nothing excites a man more than a woman saying to him, I respect you and I'll follow you anywhere, even when you don't know where you're going, because I believe you will get us there. So why is that happening? Because when the child is conceived, there's a female egg stationary, and there are millions of those male things swim towards the egg, and only one makes it. That's the one that did not stop and ask for directions. <laughs> Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Ladies and gentlemen, it's my honor to introduce, uh, to introduce to you the author of this uh, great book that hopefully will become a bestseller. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Christine Blackburn. How am I going to follow that, you guys? I don't know how to follow Yakov Smirnoff. Yakov, listen, you gave, me, you gave me a blurb in the back of my book. There's a blurb from Yakov. Did you read this book? Where am I from? Seriously, where am I from? Pittsburgh. Okay, good. We got that going on. That's good. That's exciting. You guys, listen, this is huge, man. This is freaking huge for me. I mean, this is like more exciting than my wedding day. Either of them. Listen, I, first off, I want to thank Skylight Books, of course. Skylight Books, thank you so much for letting me have my party here. 
you should uh, check out next door. There's an annex next door, and it has uh, lots of books about music and photography and film. It's my favorite part of the store. So definitely check that out. Listen, you guys, here's the thing. When you write a book or you do anything you know, in this sort of a capacity, it takes a lot of people. And I know my name is the, uh, is the big one on the book, but honestly, you guys, this book could not have happened if it weren't for my very best friend, Carolyn Brunetto, who's sitting right there. She, listen, she's so important to me. Um, she is the graphic designer. She did the cover. She did the interior. And she's done all of the, uh, the whole style guide for Storyworthy, Shotgun Storyworthy, the best of Storyworthy. The poor girl has been worked hard. And I really, Carolyn, I love you so much. You know that. And we have the same birthday. So there's that. Oh, and look who's here. Alabama Bardos. There she is. There's my daughter. Alabama is on her way to bed, you guys. So let's all say goodnight to Alabama. Also, of course, here is the right. He's sitting right here. He's my very dear friend and the co-host of the Storyworthy podcast, and that is Hannes Finney. Hannes Finney is here. Hannes and I. And we're coming up on our five-year anniversary for Storyworthy and approximately 300 podcasts. It's exhausting. That's what it is. Uh, but actually, the show's going really well. Monday, catch the show with Greg Barrent. He's on the show this Monday. An amazing talent. Um, I also want to thank my very dear friend, Debbie Yates. There she's over there by the craft services table, as it were. Deborah Yates. If you pick up my book, Pit to LAX, My Story Worthy Life, you'll see Deborah at the end in the acknowledgments. I acknowledge her at the end. Uh, I tell you, uh, for simply like her heart. Like this woman is so good to me, and she's been such a dear friend uh, for the last 20 years. And so really, Debbie, I love you so much. You're the best. Thank you. Yeah. Debbie Yates. All right. And I also want to thank all of my tennis friends who are here. Who plays tennis with me? <laughs> Who plays tennis with me? John Thomas Griffith. John Thomas Griffith. Matt Oswald. Dan Blackburn. All these guys I play tennis with. Maggie Roswell. You guys, if I don't play tennis, I don't have a good day. Like, I kid you not. It's important to me. And I, I, I even share it in the acknowledgments. It's, it's just great. So thank you to all of my tennis buddies. Um, all right. So here's this book that I wrote. And it's taken me like, you know... I don't know, man, like almost 20 years to write these stories or, you know, to get them to the where I want them to be to publish it. So I thought I would share with you uh, just part of four of the chapters, just a little part, not a lot. I mean, the whole book, the audio book is out now as well on audible.com. And the whole audio book is like two hours and 10 minutes. So I could read the whole thing to you, but I'm not going to do that. I was going to read a few small chapters. And, and I want to also say that this book, honestly, you guys, this book is for everybody who has come to Los Angeles from another city. So is that any of you guys? <laughs> who came here from another city? Yeah, exactly. Lynn Hayes from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. I think there's somebody else here from Pittsburgh. I think there's a couple of people. Yeah, man, thank you for coming. I really appreciate that. All right, so I wanted to start off... Um, Let's see here. Hold on one second. Okay, so I'm going to go up to that and then go there. All right, there I am. Oh, my God. It's a tiny little image of me. That's a tiny, tiny little image. 
I am the youngest of six children from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Now, growing up in the Midwest, the beach, this is the chapter, by the way, called the Jersey Shore, in case any of you are reading, reading along. <laughs> growing up in the Midwest, the beach was elusive. I mean, like a dream. Only rich people lived at the beach. The beach was for television and for movies. The beach didn't feel real. Yet every summer, my parents made that dream happen for our family. They packed all six kids into the Ford Country Squire with no car seats, no seatbelts, and no air conditioning, and drove eight hours east to Ocean City, New Jersey. Now, due to the birth order, I always had to sit in the way back of the Country Squire, facing backwards, along with my brother and sister. And we always left at four in the morning. I don't know what that was all about, but I guess the logic was that the kids would sleep most of the way. But that never happened. We were way too excited about going to the beach. Now, since there was no air conditioning, the windows had to be down at all times, causing a constant wind tunnel. And over the sound of hot air blowing through the car, we'd sing at the top of our lungs. We sang Peter, Paul, and Mary, If I Had a Hammer. We sang the Monkees' Last Train to Clarksville and the entire Neil Diamond and Bobby Sherman libraries. My sisters would decorate a shoebox and they'd fill it with titles of songs written on little slips of paper and we would, re- we would sing whichever song was drawn out of the shoebox as we cruised the Pennsylvania Turnpike. We'd honk the horn through all the tunnels named after the nearby mountain ranges, the Allegheny, Tuscarora, the Kitney, and the Blue. And then we'd pull over at a rest stop and tailgate with high C and assorted donuts that came in boxes of 12, cinnamon, plain, and powdered sugar. We all fought for the powdered sugar. Now I've got to show you this picture. <laughs> oh, there we are. All right, there I am with the powdered sugar donut. I'm the sassy one in the, in the orange and white. And what I love most about this picture, you see there's only seven of us because my sister Lisa was taking the photo. Yeah, I'm here. This is me, here. I'm the littlest, I'm the littlest. What I love most is in the background, you can see another country squire <laughs> heading east on the Pennsylvania Turnpike. My dad would sit on the tailgate and drink his coffee from the red checkered thermos that my mom always brought for him. He didn't touch my dad's thermos, by the way. I remember thinking that that thermos must have been the most expensive thing in the car because it was so revered. That thermos was the iPhone of 1971. All right, there I am at the top of the pyramid. As the youngest, you get to be on the top of the pyramid. We kids loved Ocean City, New Jersey, and we were each given one dollar to spend on vacation. One year, I chose a speckled cowrie shell that had been made into a whistle. And another year, I got one of those sliding number puzzles in the tiny black and white frames. Another year, we stopped at Gettysburg on the way to the beach and spent the afternoon looking for cannonballs on the battlefields. My mom even encouraged us. Oh, look over there, honey. What's that, a Confederate soldier's boot? That year, I bought a small silver cannon statue for $1.10. My brother, a huge Civil War geek, floated me the 10 cents. Now, at the beach, sunblock didn't exist, of course, so the skincare treatment went as follows. Go to the beach, burn, 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 put on a white t-shirt, go back to the rental house, lie across the bed while my mom applies Noxema to our blisters, 
And then the next day, wear the white t-shirt all day long. Repeat. I think there's a... Oh, there I am. See, look at that. Oh, my God. I'm so cute. Ridiculous. Ridiculous. To avoid getting sand in the car at the end of the day, my dad would carry each of us individually from the beach to the country squire, where he would whisk our shins and feet of sand with a broom before putting us on the steamy vinyl seats in the sweltering wagon. I can still feel that whisk whipping my sunburned legs. And at night, we would walk up to the boardwalk in matching dresses that my mother made for us. She had one, too. They were called shifts. Hold on. We wore brightly floral-colored shifts. I know, right? Now, my poor brother Scott, the only boy, he got matching shorts. Picture the Kennedys in Hyannisport, only we're on the music pier in Ocean City. My mother paraded us up and down the boardwalk and into all the fudge shops for dessert. One tiny square piece of fudge at a time, and all six children had their sweet tooth fix. And after repeating the beach, the boardwalk, and the sunburn over and over and over again, we'd head home after a week with our $1 gift and a large seashell collection. Often we'd also take starfish from the ocean. We'd put them in a sand bucket with a little bit of water and then use them as window clings on the ride home. We'd take them out of the bucket of warm water, place them on the hot car windows, and peel them on again and off again until all the suckers fell off their dying, smelly bodies all the way back home to Pittsburgh. See? It was an adorable childhood. It was sweet, and it was adorable, and it was wonderful. Now, let's go past the rape. Uh, the fact that my father left me for nine years and my ex-husband who got another girl pregnant let's go straight to when I became a flight attendant oh my god you're so awesome I so much you guys here's the thing with being a flight attendant I'm going to go right into when you are in flight attendant training that's where we're jumping in when you are in flight attendant training the first thing we learned was you had to make weight every week we had to stand in single file against a wall in a gymnasium beside the tail cone of a DC-9 as they called out our names Blackburn 5 foot 4 Canway 120 pounds the girl who led me to the scale would yell back Weighs 119. And the other girl would yell, return to class. It was brutal. If you didn't make weight, you were kicked out right there on the spot. They would put you in a van, drive you directly to the airport, and fly you back to wherever you came from because you were out. The weigh-in was very serious and completely humiliating. I burned through two roommates because they didn't make weight. People got kicked out of training for all sorts of reasons, you guys. Wearing the wrong nail polish, earrings bigger than a quarter, not wearing a beige bra. And yes, they checked. It seems they kicked people out just to intimidate those of us who remained. We started training with 200 people and graduated with 100. It was like Survivor, but instead of getting kicked off the island, you got kicked out of the hotel. There were also lots and lots and lots 
I just wrote lots once in the book. But honestly, you guys, lots of rules about our uniforms. For instance, we had to, we had to wear high-heeled navy pumps at all times. The only time we could slip on our navy flats was when we were in the air serving food or beverages. That was also when we had to be wearing our serving garment or apron. But could, you could never wear your serving garment on takeoff or landing because then you had to be wearing your double-breasted blazer. Come on, you guys, pay attention. And with all of these rules, this was yet somehow acceptable. (laughs) Take it in. Take it in. Yeah, man. It's beautiful, right? All right. To illustrate the importance of wearing your blazer and not your serving garment on takeoff and landing... During accident week, which was like shark week, but with airplane crashes, we were watching the Air Florida Flight 90 crash. Now, on January 13, 1982, a Boeing 737 crashed on takeoff into the 14th Street Bridge in Washington, D.C., crushing seven occupied cars. Then, it fell off the bridge and plunged through the ice into the Potomac River, sinking. It was a surreal scene, with only the tail of the airplane visible and ice chunks all around. People stood along the banks of the river, helpless to save the passengers who were clawing to get out of the river. Only five people survived the crash, including a flight attendant who was pulled up from the river and now dangling by a helicopter. The flight attendant, okay, wait, rivered by a helicopter. The flight attendant was dangling from a rope, hanging on for dear life, spinning in the air, and she was wearing her serving garment. And the instructor stopped the VHS tape and she said, You see? You see that? Is that what you want? Do you want to be on national television in your serving garment? I swear to God. Let me just tell you how useless all of these flight attendant rules turned out to be. About six months later, I was just off probation and flying from JFK to West Palm Beach. The flight was packed, and I was working first class, which meant I was the lead flight attendant that day. All of a sudden, a woman came up from coach between the curtains, and she whispers to me, Excuse me, stewardess. I just wanted to inform you that Mr. Klein in 5C just passed away. Oh, my God. <laughs> I'm sorry, what? And she replies, I'm his nurse, he's dead. Then she turned around, walked back through the curtains, and sat down next to him. I did not remember this in flight attendant training. So I got out the flight attendant manual, and sure enough, there was a rule. If a passenger dies on your flight, do not be alarmed, and do not alert other passengers. Place an oxygen mask over their nose and mouth, adjust the elastic band around their head, and act normally. You may also want to put a blanket in their lap. So what did I do? I got an oxygen bottle and a blanket, and I headed back through the curtains and into coach. And then I saw the guy. He was sitting in the window seat and appeared to be about 120 years old. He was dead, 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 dead. And so I began pretending to act normally. Hey, hey, Mr. Klein, I hear you're not feeling well. I turned the little air thing on over his head. How about a little extra oxygen? And the nurse helped me put the elastic band around his head. What's that? You're a little cold? Well, here's a blanket. 
And then I marched back through the curtains to first class, and I, I had a key. Back then you had a cockpit key, and I stepped into the cockpit to tell the pilots, the pilots who didn't seem the least bit phased. They said they'd alert the ground, and with that, the flight continued. There was really not a lot of fanfare about it. Now, right before we landed, I took off my serving garment, put on my double-breasted blazer, changed back into my navy pumps, and I checked on Mr. Klein one more time. Yeah, still dead. Once we were on the ground, I assumed that we would get all the passengers off, and then we'd get the dead guy off. But no, no, no! The rules say that the dead guy needs to come off first. We taxied to the gate, and I opened the door. They pulled the jetway out, and two paramedics rushed in with a straight-back chair and wheeled it back to 5C, and the charade continues. Hey, Mr. Klein, how's it going here? They said, here, you're not feeling so well. Let's just put you here in this straight-back chair. We're going to put your arms around your chest now. And they strap his arms around his chest. They tighten the belts, and they wheel him off the plane like he's on a dolly. And what did I do then? Well, hold on, I got a picture. Oh. Well, I, I just went by the rules and straightening my double-breasted blazer, I said, bye-bye, Mr. Klein. I hope you feel better. Thanks for flying with us. See you next time. Okay, a couple more, a couple more bits I'm going to do for you. Now, this one, we're fast-forwarding... <laughs> So crazy, man. To when I joined the Peace Corps. Yeah. Well, sure. Why not? Ah, why didn't you join the Peace Corps? Of course. Um, I'm still not exactly sure why I chose to dramatically change my life and join the Peace Corps, but it had something to do with being recently divorced and being bored as a flight attendant and wanting to shake things up. And I mean really shake things up. I quit my job as a flight attendant. I sold my car, got rid of my apartment, and I was assigned to the Kingdom of Tonga in the South Pacific. All right, here's a map. <laughs> in the South Pacific, Tonga, you guys, I mean, this is like the middle of nowhere. It's just to the left of the international date line. You see that yellow line going down the middle. So Tonga is the most easterly point, sure. if you're interested. I know, right? So every year when we say Happy New Year, Tonga gets it first. You get what I mean? Tonga first? Okay. Yeah, whatever. Uh, okay, here we go. The population of Tonga is only 100,000 people, and I was staying on an island, a tiny, tiny outer island of Otea, with 67 of them. The Peace Corps places trainees with a homestay family when you first arrive in your country of service. This is to help you get acclimated during your training. And I was staying with a family of four. Here we go. Okay. Uh, here we go. This is the mother and the father. Their names were Khaleesi and Tawufa. They were 25 and 26 years old. They were my parents, and I was 31. <laughs> On my, they were 25 and 26. They're big people. Tongans are big people. A lot of carbohydrates. No exercise, just carbohydrates. All right. On my, by the way, if anybody needs to get a glass of wine or some water... Uh, there's donuts here uh, from Johnny Hoops. Johnny Hoops, you know, you guys, you can hashtag him at first in line. My buddy Johnny Hoops has been the first in line at how many Dunkin' Donuts? Four Dunkin' Donuts, first in line. And that fucking means something. Do you know what I'm saying? Give it up for Johnny Hoops. Donuts. Johnny Hoops. Matt Oswald. 
have some wine. By the way, the chips are from my buddy down at Macho's Tacos, right down the strip, right down the street. Why is that funny, Lisa? Because I love you. You're like, Mickey, sure everybody gets the credit. You deserve credit, Lisa Severn. Lisa Severn and I have matching tattoos, and that's completely random. And I, no, we're not showing, okay, anyway, moving on. Okay, on my first night on the tiny island of Otea, it was pouring rain. And now these were like rains I had never seen before. The heavens opened up and water just poured down from the sky. It was as if a faucet had been turned on full blast. The mud was easily a foot thick as I followed my family in the, peach, in the pitch dark to their home, where I'd be staying for the next two months. <laughs> the house was one room and made of cement block. There was no electricity, no running water, except from what was falling from the sky. And there was a curtain down the middle of the room dividing it in half, and they gave me half of the room. Also, there was one plastic chair. It was white in the whole house, and they gave me the chair, too. Thank you very much. After drying off that night, they sat me in the chair, and the entire family, including a six-year-old boy named Valu and a two-year-old girl named Alini, sat on the floor at my feet, staring up at me like they couldn't even believe I was breathing. (laughs) The language barrier was huge, but I ignored it, and I launched full speed into my introduction. So I'm from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. It's in the Midwest. It's just south of New York. You've probably heard of it because of the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yeah. One time I got to meet Bill Cower, and it was like a really big deal. Tawufa, the father, stops me. Christina, America, do you have bread? Yes. Yes, Tawufa, we have bread. He went on. Do you have car? Well, yes. Yes, I did have a car, Tawufa. And then, do you know Clinton? No, no, I don't know President Clinton. And then finally, the, the question that put the entire experience into perspective, he looks at me and he says, Kulisatina, in America, do you have moon? I, I ignored this completely and I push on. So the NFL is divided into two divisions. There's the AFC and the NFC. What was I talking about? They didn't even know I was from the same planet. After a few more awkward moments and spotty conversation, I had to go to the bathroom, and I began talking louder and gesticulating wildly, even more wildly than I had been before. They finally got the message that I had to pee, and the entire family leads me back outside into the pouring rain. We're immediately soaking wet again. Apparently, umbrellas hadn't made their way to the outer islands of Tonga yet. The family was very excited about my Peace Corps-issued flashlight. They led me through the mud to a four-sided structure with no roof. The door was a coconut frond. All right, I'm going to show you a picture now. Okay. Okay, this is what I'm talking about. But picture it pouring rain and pitch black. Can you see this? Okay. Um, Okay, here we go. This is the bathing area. Behind it, the turquoise building. That's the latrine. In front is the pig pen. Well, sure. <laughs> all right. Here we go. Um, all right. The, okay. They led me through the mud to the four-sided structure with no roof. That's the, the, the bathing area. The door was a coconut frond. I opened the frond, and I shined the flashlight, and I saw a bucket sitting in the mud. I looked up at the family, and I asked, 
Am I supposed to pee in the bucket? Because what if I have to number two? And I shined my flashlight around the yard, and then I saw the latrine. It looked the same as the bathing area, but it had a tin roof. It's the aqua building. The family followed me, leading the way with my flashlight. We got to the latrine, and I opened the coconut frond and shined my flashlight into the small, dark space. It seemed okay. I stepped inside quickly, closed the door, and as I was lifting up my skirt, I heard it. Scratching. Scraping sounds everywhere. My flashlight flickered frantically around the tiny closet-sized space. And what did I see? Cockroaches. Oh, my God. Cockroaches. Hundreds of them. They were everywhere. The latrine started vibrating with the activity of thousands of scattering cockroaches. And before I knew it, they were flying everywhere into my hair. Shit. It's okay. It's okay, I thought to myself. I can do this. I'm a Peace Corps volunteer, or at least a trainee. I will not be hurt by cockroaches. I'm just a little grossed out. Christine, get in here, pee, and get the hell out. The seat of the toilet hall was at least three feet off the ground. How am I supposed to pee? To How am I supposed to sit up on that, I thought. I put the flashlight in my mouth, I hitched up my skirt, and I attempted, to, I attempted to hop up onto the seat. There were cockroaches on my hands, and they were dropping into my hair, and I couldn't sit still, and the urine was running down my legs, and the latrine shook even more violently, and the rain poured down. My family was outside. Koiha, ha, which means, are you okay? Are you okay? Yes, I'm fine. I'm a Peace Corps volunteer trainee. I finished peeing and I reached for toilet paper there was no toilet paper you guys this is an outer island of the south pacific they use their left hand make a note if you meet a Tongan you want to shake with the right (laughs) then I fell through the front door out of the latrine onto the ground and into the mud my family looked at me like I was from another planet which as you know they already thought I was I stood up and Khaleesi and Tawufa casually brushed the cockroaches out of my hair and off my body. We calmly walked back through the mud and we went inside. It was late. I was tired. I just wanted to brush my teeth, go to my side of the room and lay on the little bed they had made me, which by the way resembled a giant sponge with a mosquito net over it. And thank God for the mosquito net, I thought, because if the mosquitoes were anything like the cockroaches, I was in big trouble. I pantomimed to Khaleesi that I wanted to brush my teeth. She stepped back outside into the rain and brought me the bucket from the bathing area. It turns out that every family in Tonga has a bucket. I found out later that this all-purpose stainless steel bucket was used for cooking, washing clothes, washing clothes bathing, and brushing your teeth. Wait, here's a close-up. No. Oh, yeah. there, that's a close-up of the, of the bathing area. You see the bucket, a rooster to the right? Well, sure. Uh, all right, so I stepped back outside into the pouring rain, and I crouched down next to the bucket, which Khaleesi had filled halfway with water, or maybe the rain filled it. Regardless, when I was done brushing my teeth, I set the toothbrush down on the ground, and I splashed my face with water, glad the day had ended. And when I looked up... I noticed a pig running toward me out of nowhere. The pig grabs my toothbrush, turns around, and runs off into the night. Oh, I get it. I'm far from home.
<laughs> Crazy, right? All right, you guys. So one more little bit I'm, gonna, I'm, gonna, I'm going to read for you. Uh, meantime, please come up, get yourself some wine and some chips and et cetera, donuts, sandwiches. I, I got sandwiches. That's nice. That's a nice touch. It's yeah. a nice touch from the Village Bakery. Yeah, right? And the chips are from Macho Tacos. I said that. The, the donuts from Dunkin' Donuts. The wine... Ah, let's not go into it. I don't want to go into that. Anyway, the point is we have wine. All right, so we're going to jump forward now, and I'm going to do one last chapter for you guys. Um, And this is when I first got to Los Angeles. Jesus, you guys, it's 18 years ago now. All right. When I first got to Los Angeles, an ad in the LA Weekly caught my eye. They were seeking outgoing, bubbly personalities to be on the dating game. So I went to the open call. Come on, you guys, look. Suzanne Summers, Farrah Fawcett, Steve Martin, Arnold Schwarzenegger, Ron Howard, they'd all gotten their start on the dating game, and this was going to be my big break, too. Now, (laughs) what you need to know is that when I went to the open call, I had only been out of chemotherapy for a couple of months, so I was wearing a long blonde wig. You see, that's chapters 10 and 11. It's, a little, it's the cancer part. The cancer was my wake-up call that I better start pursuing my dreams to be an actress, an entertainer, or at least a contestant on the dating game. I was totally cleared of cancer, but I was still bald from the chemo. Basically, I looked like I'd just gotten out of the Navy. Now that night, after the audition, a producer named Jackie called to say that they really liked me in the interview. But then she asks... Why were you in disguise? I explain that I had just gotten out of chemo. And of course, at this point, she feels bad. And so she asks me to come to the studio so she could see me without the wig. And I agreed to go. I was completely humiliated to be seen practically bald, but I thought, hey, man, this is Hollywood. And maybe my sparkling personality was all they'd need. They could put a different wig on me if they wanted. This was my big break. I had to go. (laughs) The next day, a drive-on pass was waiting for me at the guard gate at the Sunset Gower lot. I felt like a star already. When I found the dating game stage, a receptionist led me back to Jackie's office. I took off my hat, and Jackie said, Oh, you're cute. You're fine. We want you on the show. But Christine, you can't wear your wig. And I say, Okay. I assume she has to know what she's talking about. She's a producer on the dating game. (laughs) The following week, I was back on the Sunset Gower lot, and I was officially bachelorette number two. I had on black hip huggers, a tiger print shirt, and no wig. Jackie came over to say hello to me, and then she put a little brett in my hair, like a Velcro brett for a six-month-old. I looked ridiculous. I met the other contestants, and immediately, bachelorette number one started hitting on me. That's right, she told me she was a lesbian, and she liked my haircut. I liked her too but I thought I can beat her now bachelorette number three she was beautiful she was a cheerleader from UC Santa Barbara she had long mahogany hair and was outfitted in a pastel blue number with feathers yes feathers I would have picked her in a second I didn't know if I could beat her 
The other bachelorettes and I hung out backstage talking for hours. I mean like eight hours. At one point, I saw the host, Chuck Woolery, in the hallway. It was my first celebrity sighting in L.A. And so I yell out, hey, Chuck, I love your show, man. He was paying no attention to anyone, didn't look my way, and muttered, God damn it, we're late again. Finally, it was time for my show to start taping. The paid audience was strung out on warm-up candy and barely clapping. But guess what, you guys? I was getting laughs. I was nailing it. And the bachelor was like, if you were a cat and we were on a date, how would it sound? And I'm in a tiger print shirt and I'm like, (laughs) I was on. And by the commercial break, I knew I'd won. And so did the other bachelorettes because they both looked at me and they said, Oh, you so won. (laughs) And sure enough, he chose me. Bachelorette number two. Now, the other girls went out first, and then they announced the bachelor. Uh, Jeff is a sports fanatic who loves the beach and sports. Yes, you mentioned that. Come on out, bachelorette number two. And when I turned the corner, I saw him, and he was smoking hot, and I started feeling sick to my stomach because I know he just saw the cute cheerleader, and here I was, bald with a baby ribbon in my hair. And all I could think of was, he's probably so pissed right now. But he gave me a hug, and he held my hand. And then moments later, we heard... Jeff and Christine, get ready, because you're going to Tucson, Arizona. (laughs) And now I was pissed. First I get cancer, now I got to go to Tucson. We blew a kiss in the air, and almost immediately the lights went out on the stage, the sound was shut off, and the show was over. Chuck Woolery literally sprinted to his car. Within minutes, we were pushed out of the back of the studio onto Sunset Boulevard, where we just stood there looking at each other, dumbfounded. Finally, he asked me if I wanted to go to Denny's across the street. The Denny's at Gower Gulch? Hell yeah, man! (laughs) Jeff seemed nice enough. He was so good looking, and we talked nonstop. He didn't even seem to notice my bald head. He even asked me out. I was thrilled. After Denny's, we drove to his place in Redondo Beach, where copious amounts of red wine led to a PG-13 makeout session. Before long, it was getting hot, and it was getting heavy, and you guys, I hadn't been with anybody in a long time. He was running his hands across my scalp when he said, Listen, I need to tell you something. It's about my relationship. I reply, Oh, don't worry about it. I just went on the show as a joke, and I'm bald. I get it. No worries. And then he stops me, and he says, no, 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 Christine. I mean about my relationship with Christ. And when I woke up the next morning, Jeff was not in the bed with me. I snuck out into the living room and found him curled up in a recliner sleeping. He had a Bible in his lap. Then I tiptoed into the bathroom, and I noticed some porn. It was gay porn. And my heart sank to the pit of my stomach, realizing that a smoking hot Christian who is sexually confused and perhaps in deep denial will probably not turn out to be the one for me. This was disappointing for a number of reasons. He was an amazing kisser with a great career and a place by the beach. Maybe I could overlook his preference for men. No, probably not. I left the apartment quietly. 
time passed and Jeff and I eventually became good friends. Uh, who doesn't need a lawyer now and then, especially in LA? In fact, you guys, it's been almost 20 years since I moved to LA. And I guess what I'm trying to say that in some way, I did get my first break on the dating game. Okay, so that's that. Okay. So if you would like, you can purchase the book in the, in the front of the store, uh, and then I will be happy to sign it. But in the meantime, if there's any questions, I'd be happy to answer those for you. Is there any questions? I know, right? You guys all know me so well. Here's a question right in the front. Look at that. Were, were you uh, sent to Tonga with a specific assignment, a job to do when you were with Yes. I, I was sent to Tonga to teach English as a second language. There were actually 50 or 60 different choices um, of career in, in the Peace Corps. And when I went to apply, they showed me that list, and it was like, you know, healthcare, animal husbandry, small businesses. And I didn't know anything. And I said to the girl at the University of Pittsburgh, I'm like, I guess I just don't have any of these skills. Sorry. You know, I'm handing back the application. She goes, Christine, you speak English well. I said, yes, I do. And she said, you should be, a, you, should, you could teach ESL. English is a second language. So I went and I got, I got, I got, you know, certified to teach that. And three months later, I went back. I said, hey, look, this Melissa, I got certified. I can teach English now. And she said, oh, man, that's great, Christine. Why don't you go out and volunteer for six months and come on back and see me? And I was like, okay. So I did that. It took a whole year to get into the Peace Corps. It was a huge process. At one point, I had to go to New York City to the World Trade Center uh, where the Peace Corps offices were and have an interview there. They were only on the ninth floor. That's strange, isn't it? I almost took the steps. <laughs> Thank you very much, Hal Rail. What's the question back there? Matt Oswald. When you were a flight attendant, did you ever have any I did. That's so nice of you to ask. Uh, that's called emergency on a 727, and it's right here in this book. There is a, I, I did have an emergency situation where a, a, an engine blew out, and uh, as you can see, everything ended up okay, but it was a very big deal. It's in the book. You read about it. Thanks, Matt. Any other questions, guys? Hannes Finney, my dear friend and co-host. What the, has the best and shortest blurb on your... The shortest and the best blurb on my book would come from my dear friend, Honest Finney, and it says, they say print is dead. So, hey, congratulations on your new book, Christine. <laughs> Honest Finney. Hey, you guys, listen, seriously, I appreciate so much all of you coming out. Thank you so much, really. It's your creativity. You guys are like my family. Thank you so much. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget, you can listen to this and all our other great podcasts at skylightbooks.com. Thanks again for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.